Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week on the show is Evan Turpin, who has just founded Contra Bikes and is hard at work putting together the first production run of his extremely cool-looking steel high-pivot Enduro bike. And this is, I guess, kind of turned into a little mini-series on high-pivot Enduro bikes from smaller builders. So if you haven't listened already, you should check out last week's show, which includes a really great conversation with Cavan's founder, Giacomo, about his bike and the company he's built around it. But this story is a particularly good one because Evan was a very high-level pro racer who didn't have much experience in design or engineering or fabrication, but decided to plunge headlong into this project of building a bike anyway. And his whole story about how he kind of learned everything that goes into designing and building a production bike on the fly is a super cool one and, frankly, enormously impressive. And so it's a really great chat, a ton of great stuff in it. But before we get into it, I would also like to just take a quick minute to encourage you to check out our Blister membership if you haven't already. Because if you're enjoying these conversations about us dorking out about bike stuff, you'll probably also really appreciate the ability to send us an email and get a personalized response from me about the next bike you're looking to buy or maybe an upgrade to your current ride or your suspension setup or whatever else you have going on with your bike because that's one of the perks that you get as a blister member along with a bunch of other great stuff including access to our flash reviews and deep dives and a bunch of really good gear discounts from a whole bunch of companies across the bike and ski worlds so check that out and with that Let's get right to our conversation with Evan Turpin of Contra. Well, Evan, great to have you on and thanks for taking the time to chat. How are you today and where are you today? I'm doing great. Um, I'm in Aptos, California and excited to talk with you about the bike. Yeah, likewise. And so, yeah, we'll get into that here in a second. But uh, like I'm saying, you have launched a pretty ambitious project started a new bike company have a very cool looking bike in the works which i got to see in person at sea otter a few weeks back and um was honestly the probably the coolest thing i saw there just um, a lot going on with the bike and some very very interesting design details that we'll dive into here in a minute but before we do all that uh it'd be great just to sort of touch on a little bit of your background as a mountain biker and uh, kind of where and how you got your start in mountain bikes. Yeah. Uh, I started mountain biking back in, whew, I think it was 2000. Um, actually was like a little kind of skateboarder punk kid in middle school and uh, was skateboarding before school. And this kid, you know, basically was wheeling down the road on a Santa Cruz bullet and I had never seen anybody do a wheelie like that. And I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> and your bike looks incredible. And he let me ride it around. Uh, and this was like before school started. And I remember riding it over a speed bump and being like blown away that it could absorb a speed bump. <laughs> <laughs> and ever like right after that, I basically was like going home, dusting off the, you know, the rigid Cannondale, uh, mountain bike that my parents got for Christmas for me, like, you know, years prior and just ride, I just rode the crap out of that thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, funny enough, the guy that, um, kind of got me started into it, uh, not through, you know, I don't think he meant to get me into mountain biking, but it was Jamie Goldman who went on to be on the Santa Cruz syndicate and free ride guy. And he doesn't do it, uh, anymore, but kind of an interesting story <laughs> but yeah just really got into mountain biking rode the crap out of this uh rigid cannondale um and then saved up like mode mode lawns and did did chores and tried to save up as much as i could to get a um my first mountain bike was a my first real mountain bike full suspension was a, a specialized big hit but it wasn't the one with the 24 inch wheels it was like uh 26, 26 inch wheels front and rear it had like a Marzocchi junior T fork and, um, Hayes, I think Hayes mags or something like that. 
And so I, that, that was, that like blew my mind finally having a, um, full suspension, you know, compared to riding a rigid bike with cantilever brakes, it was like a massive, massive upgrade and, um, rode that thing for quite a while race, did my first, um, downhill race on the bike at this place called Hollister Hills, which is actually a motorcycle park. Um, but they used to have a really cool downhill race series there. So I did a bunch of races there and then went to my first Sea Otter Classic, I think in 2001 and, and raced and then was just hooked basically. So, um, yeah. And then kept, kept going from there. Eventually got good enough to, to race pro level downhill and, uh, and then, and then later on did some enduro racing as well. Yeah. So like you mentioned, you kind of had a solid career racing uh, professionally for a while there. And then I guess I'd love to just hear then kind of what came after that and how you ended up making the jump into deciding that the thing to do was to start a bike company and start actually making the bikes yourself too. Because as we'll get into, it's not just that you're having some factory in Asia crank this out or anything, but uh, there's a whole lot that goes into it. And so where did the idea kind of first germinate and how did it grow into actually happening from there? Yeah, I think the, the idea was a very long time coming. Um, when I first started mountain biking, I was, I was obsessed. Like I, I literally, literally carried a, a picture of like the dream bike that I wanted in my pocket when I would go to school Um, which at the time was a specialized S works team DH, which was like what Sean Palmer and Kurt Boris rode. Oh, hell yeah. And I actually ended up getting one of those bikes at one point. I wish I still had it, but I I don't, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, so I was always like obsessed with the mechanical aspect of, of bikes and, and mountain bikes. And from an early age, I was basically just drawing bikes like my dad gave me all of his um he's a civil engineer and he gave me like a lot of his like drafting tools so we had like you know little templates and like protractors and like I don't know all these drawing tools so I was just hand drawing like side view side profile views of bikes and I had that's another thing that I wish I still had but I I don't (laughs) but I drew so many bikes and I had one that was really cool. That was actually kind of almost like a high pivot bike at the time. And it, and on it, I put a, a logo that said ET, but it was in the GT um, <laughs> font. <laughs> Cause I, that was also like a big, at the time I watched, um, you know, transcontinental headliners too. And, and GT was like a big, big team as well. They had really cool bikes back then. Um, but yeah, so I, I'd always been like drawing stuff and always been very kind of mechanically minded, but never really pursued anything because I got into racing and that was my focus. Um, so yeah, over the years, I'd always done like testing and stuff with, you know, Fox Racing Shocks or I don't know, special. I, I don't know if I, I can't remember all the things that I tested, but I tested lots of, lots of different stuff and gave feedback and, and probably had some strange opinions at the time because I didn't really know what I was talking about. But um, yeah, the it kind of, there's a few things that happened over time. So one of which is I, I got out of high school early. I took the California high school proficiency exam because I just wanted to race bikes, um, which is basically like the GED. Got out of high school early, but the, the stipulation from my parents was that I had to go to the community college. <laughs> so it wasn't really, it gave me more freedom, but I still was going to school and I was a terrible student. I just didn't care about school at all. All I cared about was racing, but there was one class that I, that I took that was really cool, which was pro, called pro engineer, which is like a 3d design software. And I actually failed the class, but I, because I was basically spending the whole time designing a fork cartridge for a RockShox boxer instead of doing, (laughs) instead of doing what I was supposed to do. And that's just like how my brain worked. I didn't care about anything. I was just like, I only care about bikes and like wanting to, you know, have, have them go faster and stuff. And that was, 
so so the boxers at the time the rockshox fork was like it was a good chassis at the time but the dampers were like really bad they were just based off of like 1970s technology so i designed this fork cartridge and then working with um the guys at gamut usa they were like one of my sponsors early on um so they made like chain guides and and everything and we basically made this thing in like a day and a night out of their garage like i learned how to use a lathe and we made some round parts and they cnc'd like the pistons and and ended up racing on it and winning semi-pro national championships in mammoth that was when i was racing semi-pro when, when they used to have that category um so that was like i guess that was my first experience of like trying to make something and like actually make something for a bike and then that then nothing really ever happened after that it, it i just ended up racing you know the suspension got way better so you didn't really need to make your own cartridge anymore you know we had the fox 40 at that point and that was working really good um but yeah it yeah i guess i guess fast forwarding past all the racing that i did um eventually i ended up back in a working in a bike shop a local bike shop here um scott's valley cycle sport which is a which is a sweet shop um but working as a mechanic can be kind of frustrating at times mm-hmm. uh, cause you, you know, you obviously you're supposed to be the professional, the one with knowledge and everything. And, and I felt like I was a, a pretty good mechanic. Like I was the lead mechanic at that shop and I don't know what happened, maybe a customer or something, something happened. And I was really just kind of like had it with, not with the bike shop itself. Cause that was a great shop. Um, but just more like, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't want to be a bike mechanic, you know? Um, and <laughs> it was kind of funny. I went to, I met my fiance for lunch and ran into a friend that I used to work with at a, a different bike shop. And he had just gotten a job at Fox racing shocks doing like stuff in the engineering department. And <laughs> I was in such a bad mindset that day that basically he, he said that. And instead of like congratulating him and being like, yeah, sweet, you got your new job. That's, that's awesome. I was like, looks like everybody has my dream job, but me, <laughs> it was like, and everybody was just like, okay, <laughs> like what's wrong with you? <laughs> like what's up your ass. <laughs> and, uh, and so kind of at that moment, <laughs> I was like, we pretty much realized and like, yeah, I need to do something else. And like, I don't, I don't remember if right away I was like, okay, I need to make bikes because this is something I've been wanting to do, do for a long time. Um, cause I was always tinkering with, uh, the link linkage program, the linkage design, um, program. Like I would always use that to kind of like analyze bikes and like play around and do a little bit of bike design and stuff. And, um, I, I always like felt like I could make a bike that, that was better than, you know, everything that I had ridden before and would hopefully tick all the boxes of what I, what I wanted, but I just never, I never, you know, pursued it. Cause I felt like it was kind of impossible to, to learn everything that I would need to learn all the 3d design, all the fabrication, like getting all that in line seemed like it was going to be really difficult. And, and yeah, so I, I basically just at that point, like kind of put together a little bit of a plan and I ended up going to the bank and just taking out a personal loan so that I could quit my job and work on this. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I just love the most about this story is that you kind of had all this stuff that you had to learn in order to make this project come to fruition and just went for it. Like I've mentioned this on here before, but I've, I've gotten a background as a mechanical engineer. I worked as one for like a decade before I started working for blister instead. And I've got a million linkage files for bikes that I've cooked up over the years, but I've still never come close to actually pulling the trigger and making one of these things. And just, I'm impressed by kind of taking the initiative and diving into this whole thing. So 
obviously you mentioned that pro E class and a little bit of lathe experience making that cartridge back in the day. But beyond that, you didn't have a whole lot of background in engineering or design or fabrication at that point, right? Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely didn't. I had to, had to learn everything and I guess, you know, thankfully YouTube is pretty good and, <laughs> and, uh, I had, you know, a, a friend that offered to let me use his shop, a space in his shop and, and kind of gave me a quick and dirty, um, you know, rundown of how to use, how to operate, you know, a lathe safely and, and a mill and, you know, just, uh, what else do we have? A cold saw. So, you know, you can cut large chunks of steel or aluminum pretty easily with that. And, um, kind of just, he kind of just set me loose in his shop and, and allowed me to experiment and learn and make, make mistakes and, uh, you know, eventually end up making a bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when are we talking at this point? Like when did you really kind of make the leap and start actually cutting up metal and making something? Uh, well, as far as actually starting to make something, cause the design, like learning how to design it, first of all, t that took a long time. So like the design process, I, I think took me probably about nine months, if I remember correctly, from when I first quit my job to like learn how to use pro pro E and, um, I actually just got like a student version of it at the time. Um, and then I, yeah, so I would think it was, it was probably at, you know, nine months after that, which would have been probably like August of 2020 maybe is when I was actually starting to, to make parts and, um, you know, a massive learning experiences like tol tolerances was, was something I had no understanding of when I first started designing stuff or even making stuff. I, I remember talking with a friend who worked at Fox racing shocks as a, as a design engineer. And I'm like, yeah, I've got all my drawings. I just need to like send them out to get, you know, machined. And he's like, so do you have like all your tolerances and everything? I'm like, I'm like, no, you just, you just send them the part. It's like a 3d file and they just make it. <laughs> <laughs> I had like no idea that there's, you know, that you had to call out, tolerances and stuff and and I remember when I first learned how to do tolerancing I was just like calling out ridiculously tight stuff that you know didn't need to be as tight as it is and it was just like people were like yeah uh, we can't really do that like that's <laughs> that's not possible and then you learn too through actually making your own parts and like checking fit of stuff what actually does and doesn't matter you know um, so yeah, that was a, that was a crazy learning experience and I'm glad that I've, uh, kind of started to dial that into where I can figure out where things can be a little looser. So it's not such a massive headache, like where it's not necessary to be incredibly tight, but there's certain things you can't change. So like bearing press fit interfaces have to be pretty perfect if you want them to be smooth, um, not creak and, you know, last a long time and. Um, yeah, there's other things that I do that probably could still loosen up further, but I, I'm just, I always want it to be as close to what I've designed the bike to be. Uh, you know, I don't want to push tolerances out too far and then have it not work in the way that it's designed. So, yeah, that's a tricky thing to dial in and it's, I think really important for people trying to design stuff to really have some experience in fabrication and have a handle on how the thing's actually going to get made too from my career working as an engineer just had so many instances i can think of of an engineer someone who's got a degree in it and has worked as one for a long time just designing something that was just a ridiculous pain in the ass to make and so much more complicated than it needed to be from a manufacturing perspective just because they didn't really have a good understanding of how those things worked and so it all kind of has to come together and it's cool that you've been sort of learning both sides of that on the fly simultaneously and 
building up to this this final product. So at this point, kind of when you're starting off with the design, where did you start? What did the first iterations of the bike look like and what were your design goals for them? You know, you have this idea of how you want the bike to ride and what you're looking for, but take us through what that was and what you were targeting with it, basically. Yeah. So the, the first bike, the, the very first bike that I designed and the goals that I had, it was, I knew I wanted to make a high pivot bike. And this was, I think, right when this was in, you know, I think in, in 2018, when I first decided to do this, um, that was when I think the forbidden bike was like being shown and high pivots were kind of just starting to be the, the, the new hot thing, um, because of all the, you know, the common saw team and how much they were dominating at the time. Um, and obviously they're still doing really well today, <laughs> but, um, yeah, continuing to dominate. Yeah. Uh, so I had ridden a common, common saw Supreme SX. Uh, I was able to borrow it from a friend and, um, really liked certain aspects of that, like how it was in the rough, but I didn't like, it just carried speed and, and was so smooth through the rough. It felt like a much longer travel bike. Um, even though it was 180 bike, 180 mil travel bike, it felt like it was, you know, as capable or more capable than a full downhill bike. Um, but there were weird things like it had really high, um, anti-rise, which is basically the, the influence from braking, how much it affects your suspension. So basically you would hit the brakes and the back of the bike would dive down into the travel pretty aggressively so much so that it would like disrupt the, the balance of the bike temporarily when you, when you would apply the brakes. Um, so I knew that was something that I didn't like about a high single pivot design. And then also I didn't like, um, kind of how much it would wear you out. It was just a lot more drag, uh, more noise, uh, especially on that bike, that bike had, I think pretty short chain stays and a short chain run. And it had a small idler pulley and, um, there were a lot of issues with that bike. So, but I could see that there was a, you know, a potential benefit. So for me, I wanted it to pedal really efficiently. That was always a big thing. Cause I don't think anybody wants to ride a bike that doesn't pedal efficiently. And then I want it to carry speed through the, through the rough really good with a rearward axle path. I wanted it to have a predictable braking characteristic to where it wasn't disrupting the geometry of the bike or doing anything weird. And then I wanted like a really nice leverage rate um, that played well with shocks, but also um, just had a good feel and was and was not necessarily bottomless, but would have a nice progression to it to where you didn't need to run a ton of volume spacers in an air shock or, you know, you could actually run a coil shock without it bottoming out harshly. So yeah, the first bike that I designed was a, was a single pivot with a linkage, um, a single high pivot, but it was really far forwards. So a long swing arm kind of similar to a Brooklyn machine works, uh, bike from back in the day. Um, and then it used a big idler pulley. So I used a 22 tooth idler pulley, um, because the larger the idler pulley you use, uh, at least what, what we understand is that it's more efficient, um, because the chain isn't changing as much angle, uh, as it engages the, the idler pulley. And as it leaves the idler pulley, it doesn't create as much friction. Um, it would also last longer just more, you know, wear better than a smaller idler pulley. Um, so yeah, that was the, the, the first bike ended up being this crazy heavy single pivot with a linkage. It was really complicated to make and actually halfway through making it, I found out that because I didn't really understand the forces going into the bike that I needed to do FEA on the way the shock was putting stress into the top tube and, and, uh, the swing arm was putting stress into the down tube. And if I hadn't done that, uh, I probably would have had a bike that would have, you know, bent <laughs> basically. 
So um, I ended up adding, having to add these. I, it took me, I was freaking out and I had to figure out a solution because I had already, you know, got CNC parts made. I was already really in deep into it and had made this assumption because I just didn't understand. And so then I started doing FEA really heavily and I figured out a solution, but I mean, it added 500 grams to the weight of the bike. <laughs> so, so it, it was, I was able to, to, to salvage the first prototype to be able to prove the concept of the suspension design. Uh, and the other thing too, was that um, a lot of bikes that have a traditional drivetrain, so non high pivot where, you know, that it's just coming from your front chain ring straight to the rear cogs. They generally get a pretty big difference in the anti-squat characteristic, um, based on which gear it's in. And that has to do with like the geometry of, of the suspension system and how it reacts with, with the, the chain changing angle, uh, for different gears and stuff. It's so, um, that was another thing that I through practice could basically learned that I could create a bike that has the same anti-squat percentage at sag in every single gear. Um, and that at the time I was like, Oh, a hundred percent is like the, the absolute perfect. Cause it's, it's a hundred percent means it's countering a hundred percent of the acceleration forces and that it is. But uh, you also have to take into account your body mass moving up and down because we're not, you know, we do move on the bike as well. So we uh, impart a little bit of uh, vertical, you know, oscillation on the bike as well. So uh, what I learned is that even a hundred percent wasn't necessarily enough. Um, you needed to have a little bit more so that it would counter that force, but that was a good learning experience from the first bike. Um, and yeah, it rode really well. It was just super heavy <laughs> and I knew I didn't want the bike to be super heavy. So. Yeah. And take us through a little bit how you actually got this thing built. You alluded already to sending out some of the parts to CNC shops to get machined, but uh, like in terms of cutting and mitering tubes and building a jig and welding the thing together and all the rest, how did you get that done? So I, I kind of tried to, I think I tried to do it as simply as I could. So, um, for making, the first jig I used, uh, Mike six, which is basically a, a really flat, uh, plate extrusion that you can buy. That's it's, it's like, uh, you can get it in all different sizes. You can get like, you know, massive things of it, but I ended up using, I think like four, four inch wide Mike six plate. And then I would basically design that to have all the, the hard points, um, that I needed for the, you know, all the pivot locations and everything. And I did it to do it cheaply and to, to be able to use what I, the machines that I had access to, I did it as multiple pieces that were bolted together. So there was like the first jig had, you know, the bottom bracket and, or the first piece had the bottom bracket in the seat tube. And then it had those two pickup points. And then from there, there was like a piece extending all the way to the head tube that had like the upper shock mount and the head tube position. And then there was another extension piece bolted off of that, that had the main pivot and any other, I can't remember what else there was on that bike, but, um, so that was a cheap, a cheaper way of doing it. Cause the material cost was smaller and it was something that I could fit into the mill that I had access to, to, to precisely drill the holes for it. Um, but there is also the potential for when you're bolting things together, um, for there to be like a tolerance stack up and for there to be error, but the bike ended up being really quite accurate. Uh, after I had my jig constructed, you know, learning how to miter stuff, I'm, sh I can't even remember how long the first bike took to miter. Um, it was a long time. Um, I had a little bit of a education, you know, knowledge dropped on me from John Coletti at Coletti Cycles just to kind of give me a little bit of uh, a head start on that, but pretty much did 
all of the mitering myself, all the fabrication of all the parts that could be made by hand. Like on the first bike, there were these big steel plates to, to reinforce it. That was a part of the strength issue that I had. And those I literally, you know, made a template and cut them out <laughs> with a jigsaw <laughs> and then bent them by hand. And like, well, you know, basically a hammer and a, <laughs> and a vice because it was mm-hmm. a prototype. Um, and now since then I've learned, oh, you can order laser cut parts and they're super precise and, <laughs> and, and way more affordable than, and way worth your, you know, way more worth it compared to spending all this time cutting out and filing and sanding pieces of steel. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of learning. You know, I did the same thing for the swing arm. It had all the pickup points actually could fit on one piece of plate. And then there were standoffs, basically parts you would make on the lathe that would, you know, space your dropouts, the exact width that they needed to be at and space the pivots, the exact width that they needed to be at. Um, and so after everything was mitered, I actually had it, I was lucky enough to get John Coletti from Coletti cycles to, to do the TIG welding. Cause I don't think I would, I mean, there's no way that I would trust myself to do the TIG welding on a bike that's going to be ridden that hard, um, with no, with no experience. Um, so handing it off to somebody that's had, you know, 15 years experience making high end custom, you know, uh, steel and titanium frames was just like, was so nice, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. it took that stress away. And I, I, and then I, you know, wasn't worried about, Oh, is, is the head tube going to rip off? Cause it wasn't welded correctly, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. I I'm sure I'm glossing over a lot of the details, uh, cause this could go on way too long if I <laughs> yeah. was just talking about every detail, but yeah, there's different ways that people make jigs. And for me, like, I just really like using, um, Mike six plate cause it's just really flat and, and, um, pretty readily available. Like you can get it from McMaster car and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not as once you're drilling holes and plates and stuff, it's not as adjustable, but you can also, you know, repurpose stuff or you can make it modular where you have different plate pieces that bolt on, um, if you want to do different frame sizes. So I think my first jig actually had like three different frame sizes on it, even though I only ended up making the one frame size, which was basically a large. And I'm sure the answer is about a million things, but what are some of the biggest lessons you learned from going through that first prototype and everything that went into designing it and learning how to do all the fabrication work and all the rest? And I guess I'm curious, sort of in what ways was it harder than expected and were there any ways in which it was easier or was it all just really hard? I think for me, like everything, everything was very hard and, and stressful initially just because uh, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So, I mean, there were parts of the very first bike that I was making on the lathe that were like, I was so slow that it was taking me like a day or two to make this one part. But it was also incredibly, you know, an incredibly complex part. There were so many things that had to go right. So, um, I would say probably, well, now I'm kind of forgetting your question. I think you were saying what kind of advice I would give to somebody, uh, that was doing the same thing. (laughs) I'm just, yeah, I'm just curious sort of how the experience of learning all this stuff as you went goes because i think in some part like part of the reason that the various bikes i've cooked up in my head and in linkage and i have some cad files and stuff too over the years have never really gone anywhere is that sort of i have enough experience in engineering and as i'm a halfway okay machinist i can't really weld worth much and i sort of feel like i know enough to know how hard it would be for me to learn the stuff that I need to get dialed to actually go ahead with something like that. And I just am again, impressed that you have kind of started from not having too much experience in this world and just figuring it all out and having such a good go at it. And I'm curious 
kind of how much harder or how in what ways it was surprisingly hard in what ways it was kind of expectedly hard i guess and if there are any in what ways things might have actually been easier than you had feared they would be going in yeah uh, i would say as as far as things that uh were more difficult than what i anticipated obviously the manual machining of parts learning how to do that and and learning how to do that um you know accurately and efficiently that definitely took a lot longer um i think it's probably varies for each person that you know is is operating a machine for the first time um everything ended up taking you know probably at least two to three times as long as I thought it would take. Um, same with design stuff, you know, like you'd, you'd be like, Oh, I can just design this link and it'll, you know, it's pretty simple. It'll probably only take a couple days. And then it's like two weeks later and you're still working on the same link, trying to perfect it. Cause there's kind of, you know, unforeseen clearance issues or, um, you know, once I started learning about FEA and doing FEA on the bike, then you start to, you learn pretty quickly, um, what you, what you can and can't get away with structurally, um, when you start doing FEA. So, um, I think everything basically is going to take longer than you think, but if, you kind of keep your eye on the the prize of the end goal of uh, you're going to get to ride this really cool bike that you've created. Um, then it, it's all, it's all justified. I, I definitely don't think there was a single thing that was easier. <laughs> there definitely wasn't anything that was easier. Everything was harder than I expected, but I think part of that is just cause I, uh, when you're inexperienced with, um, this stuff, it's, it's really easy to just to, to look at it and be like, Oh yeah, it's just, it's really simple. You're just doing this. You're just cutting out this metal part this way. And <laughs> you know, you, you really can't, there's not really a substitute for, for learning through, through doing, um, you know, in the future, I would love to like help other people that want to make you know, that have ideas for bikes and they want to learn how to do it because I feel like so much of my time was spent just scouring YouTube or, or like forums or whatever to try to learn little snippets of information that could point me in the right direction. And yeah, like ultimately you have to figure out, uh, that path for yourself. So that stuff took a lot longer as well. Um, but yeah, probably the biggest the the biggest advice that I could give to somebody that wants to get into it is just to is just to go for it and and basically you know, you can make mistakes. Like it, as long as you're not you know, maybe sending out for a bunch of expensive CNC machine parts and then you realize you did a dimension wrong and now you've just spent 5 grand on all these CNC machine parts and they're all not usable. Like that's something that you really want to pay attention to. But like, as far as learning how to fabricate things, like going and trying to make parts and, you know, unfortunately you will throw away some of them. Um, some of them can be repurposed into smaller parts if it's like a lathe part. Um, but just, yeah, don't be afraid to, to go for it. And, you know, you can even start on, not that great of machines, you know, there's like, I, I don't necessarily recommend like a, a cheap Chinese lathe or whatever, but you can start on that. I mean, there's people that build frames out of their garages using like, you know, a $900 Chinese little mini mill, you know, and like a, I don't know how much the, the lathes go for, but you can use really small kind of crap. You can learn on crappy machinery. You know, you wouldn't want to make stuff long-term on that. Um, it's definitely a lot easier to work with a much larger, you know, machine that's much more rigid. So 
we just now have a bridge port in the shop. Um, and that for people that don't know, that's like a big, heavy, uh, milling machine. That's really stiff, bomb proof. And it just makes everything so much easier because it's, it's way more powerful. It doesn't, you know, chatter around when you're, when you're cutting, uh, material. Um, but it's not entirely necessary for somebody just starting out. So yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, my, my biggest word of advice is just don't be afraid and just go for it and, and don't be afraid to make, make mistakes. And, um, but definitely pay somebody that's really good at welding to do your welding because <laughs> that's the last thing you want to be worried about, you know? Yep. No, I think that's good. And just again, yeah, continue to be impressed that you've gone for this and gotten this far. So after that first high pivot prototype, where did you go from there with the bike design? Because it's evolved quite a bit from that iteration. So kind of what came next and what were the things that you most obviously wanted to change about that first prototype apart from cutting some weight, like you already mentioned? Yeah. So the, the first bike I rode for quite a while, um, just to get a good feel for what it was doing. And, you know, cause when you first ride it, you're like, Oh, that's the best bike in the world. This is doing everything perfect. And then when the honeymoon period, you know, ends, you start to think about little things and, and try to think of it more critically. So, you know, the bike, I still feel like the first bike was really good. It rode really, really good. Um, but it, obviously it was heavy. So that was, yeah, that was a huge, um, focus was trying to simplify the construction of it, um, partially to cut weight, but also, um, you know, just to make it simpler to make because making that bike was tremendously difficult. Um, so I played around with a bunch of different designs still with them trying to achieve a lot of the same kinematic goals. So the, the characteristics of the bike. Um, so that was playing around in linkage design, which is just the 2d, you know, design software. And I came up with multiple designs and they would always kind of get through pretty far. And then I would run into some big issue. Like one of the designs I made infringed on the DW link patent. And I didn't know that until, um, somebody basically pointed it out to me when I was reviewing the design with them. And then, so I had to abandon that one and that, that was a bummer. And then I went down a path of like, Oh, well, basically I came up with a bike that kind of looks almost the same as all of the, the new horse link high pivot bikes. Um, but it achieved kind of all the goals that I wanted it to do. But the big issue was like, packaging of that and and getting it it was very it was limited in a few areas what i could achieve kinematically so i then abandoned that as well and these are going pretty far like i would get pretty far into like 3d design and even getting into some fea and stuff and then abandoning it so um for whatever reason i kind of thought I wasn't really ever going to have a solution that was going to work for what I, what I wanted it to do. And then somehow just kind of stumbled upon (laughs) doing a design with counter rotating links, which, which usually I would never consider because it's pretty difficult to, to balance all the characteristics with, with a design like that. Um, I know that that's, uh, part of the reason why maybe like a lot of uh, VPP bikes had like pretty similar characteristics is it was like pretty difficult to make a bike with different characteristics and um, in that, in that specific packaging. So um, this bike had some unique, uh, it just had some unique layout features where everything was basically everything was, moved more forwards. So your virtual pivot was further forwards, similar to my first 
single pivot prototype bike. Um, but in doing that, I found out there were some big benefits um, of that layout. Like basically the way that it puts forces into the bike is, is really good. The pivot, the pivot forces are something that I've had to learn how to, how to deal with over time. And I think the best way to deal with them in the first place is to design a layout that channels the forces into the bike in a good way and potentially reduces them instead of amplifying them. So, um, this bike, you know, the shock is pushing straight up into the top tube, which by itself would be bad, <laughs> but you also have a link pulling down on the top tube at the same time. And so those two, they don't fully counter each other out, but they make it possible to have, um, just a regular, well, a regular top tube as in it's not heavily reinforced or anything. Um, and not have damage, uh, to that, like permanent damage, even under a huge, you know, bottom out, uh, impact. And then also where the lower link is attached, um, for whatever reason, like I, I don't fully understand, um, all of the forces. Like I don't, I'm not an engineer, so I don't have, um, the ability to like manually calculate those forces, but I, I do, um, the calculations through linkage design. So you can through linkage design, if you get the professional version, it'll show you what the pivot forces are based off of how firm of a spring rate you input. So I basically virtually test the bikes to, to withstand, uh, it's like eight, what is it? 8,000 Newtons of force down through the bottom bracket which is like 1800 pounds. So that's like a 180 pound rider pulling 10 G's. And, and, uh, I believe that's the same standard as what they, they test for, um, at the EFBE for their, uh, which is the test lab out of Germany for their downhill certification. So the bike has to be able to withstand that amount of force. That's not the only thing. There's a whole bunch of other tests, but that's one of the ones that's difficult to pass. It has to be able to withstand that force for something like 10 seconds without permanently, permanently deforming or catastrophically failing. So with this new bike, it's able to withstand that without even getting near the yield point of the material where it starts to stretch and deform. So that, uh, that was like a huge huge step in the right direction was just the channeling of the forces with that bike. Um, but then also, you know, it still does a lot of the same things that the first bike does did. So it has a nice rearward axle path. It's a little over 20 millimeters rearward. Um, and then it has a really good leverage rate. Um, I increased, or I shouldn't say increased. I improved the, the braking characteristics. So I actually dropped, the anti-rise number down some, which basically means the bike is a little bit more active under braking. It's still really stable, um, but it's a little bit more active. So you get a little more grip and a little more natural feeling under braking. That was one thing that I noticed with the first bike was that it was so neutral under braking that when you would hit the brakes, um, it was almost unnatural feeling because the bike didn't get upset. It didn't pitch forwards or or backwards or whatever. Um, and it was made, it would kind of made it hard to late break into a corner because naturally when you hit the brakes really hard, you usually would move your weight back on the bike. And since it wasn't, um, it basically the, the rear suspension wasn't pitching you forwards at all. When you shifted your weight back, your bike just basically got really like almost extra slack because it was unexpected. So, that wasn't great if you were late breaking into a corner um, and then trying to initiate a turn to have a slacker head angle while you're turning isn't great. So um, that was something I knew I wanted to improve and that, that improved with this multi-link design. Um, yeah. And then obviously the, because of the reduced forces in the bike, I was able to take a lot of weight out of the bike just in using lighter materials, less material where it's needed, and I still got a good stiffness out of the back end of the bike. 
which I think most people look at it and they're like, there's no way that can be stiff because it's just these really long seat stays and chain stays. But you, you to really know what it how how stiff the bike is, you have to have a good understanding of the materials you're using. And steel is just quite a bit stiffer than aluminum in a more compact package. So if you were to do the same diameter tubing out of aluminum, um, even if it was, you, you basically would have to have an incredibly thick wall thickness in aluminum for it to be the same stiffness as my, you know, 035 wall chain stays and seat stays, which is like 0.9 of a millimeter thick. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I could go on quite a bit about the bike, but how about you take us through some of the sort of just more like basic details. So what are you doing for travel and geometry and wheel sizes and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So right now the travels at 164 millimeters rear, uh, 170 on the front. You, you can adjust it. If you put a different stroke shock, it can go all the way down to 147 on the back. Um, geometry wise, the head angle is 63 and a half with a 170 fork. It's 29 inch wheels front and rear on the size large. Um, I think the smaller frame sizes are when it gets down to small and extra small, it's going to be a 27.5 rear wheel only just because of clearances. Um, you want to have a shorter chain. I want to have shorter chain stays on the, on the small frames. Um, so that's difficult to do with a 29 inch wheel and still have good like seat to tire clearance um, for shorter riders. Um, it also has a 78 degree actual seat tube angle. So it, it starts at the bottom bracket, the seat tube and is 78 degrees. So it's no different depending upon, you know, where you run your saddle height, it's no different for the angle doesn't change for any of the height of riders, which is really nice because there's a lot of bikes that have a stated seat tube angle and it's only at this exact height is at that angle and everywhere else it's a different angle. So some bikes can actually be quite a bit slacker or quite a bit steeper actually. Um, other things it's uh, on a size large, it's a 480 millimeter reach. Um, I will have larger sizes available too, probably all the way up to 520 millimeter reach. Um, we could theoretically make stuff even longer, it, it wouldn't be a problem. It's just adding either some holes to my jig or or bolting on a different piece. Um, but I figured between, I think I, I think my reach range right now is between 420 millimeters all the way up to 520, and so that's like a extra extra small through extra extra large. <laughs> yeah, that's a so, big range. So <laughs> for sure. That yeah, that ought to cover a whole lot of people anyway. And kind of where are you at on production at this point, and how's that all going? Certainly, the prototype that you had at Sea Otter looked really nicely polished, and fabrication looked very impressive. So, kind of curious how things are coming along, and when you think we might start seeing these out in the wild more. Yeah, the production stuff has been tricky for me because um i mean we have you know parts are being cnc'd right now basically the the linkages the idler pulley um i actually have my own sram universal derailleur hanger dropout design that's being machined right now um out of steel uh because nobody makes one right now at least at least not you know for aftermarket purchase for frame builders um so CNC parts are being made. I've, I've basically purchased all of my tubing. Like I have all of my tubing. I have all my bearings. I have my seat clamps. I just, you know, there's axles and all these things that just got put on order. Um, all my pivot hardware is, is going to be, um, actually made at a, you know, a CNC shop here in, in California. Um, I was making that stuff by hand and it just, 
it's great for prototypes, but it, you know, it takes me two to three days to make all the pivot hardware for one bike. And I can't do that if I'm trying to make a ton of, a ton of bikes, um, or not a ton of bikes necessarily, but a large, a, a batch of bikes. I need to be spending my time, you know, mitering the tubes and getting the frames ready to be welded. Um, so then, yeah, there's, there's other things that I'm working on right now for production. Um, I'm designing my own tubing bender because nobody makes one that does specifically what I want for the bike. Um, so basically, yeah, I'm creating a mandrel tubing bender. And for those people that don't know tubing benders, you have like your regular tubing bender that, that basically just bends the tubes, um, over dies, uh, and it, you know, it, it can do a pretty good bend if the wall thickness is thick enough and the radius is big enough. But anyway, I'm creating one that can do tighter radiuses, um, on thinner wall tubes without distorting it as much because it basically has an internal support as it's being bent, like right where it's being bent, it's being supported internally so it doesn't crumple. Um, so that's taking me a bit longer. Um, but the benefit of that is that I'll be able to have much better tire clearance, um, chain ring clearance and crank clearance because I'll be able to do tighter bends than what would be possible otherwise. Um, but that's pushed things back a little bit. So I'm hopeful to have, uh, frames available, uh, later this summer. Like that's still the goal. You know, originally I thought it was going to be spring this year, <laughs> but there's always every, like I said earlier, everything always takes longer. Um, it, but I'm, you know, I'm glad I'm taking the route, taking the time to try to make sure that it's exactly how I want it to be. Um, cause I would hate to push something through and then, you know, there's a bunch of people with bikes with not good tire clearance because I didn't, I didn't, uh, take the time to make the tubing bender. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm basically getting ready for, I mean, things are already being produced, but I'm getting ready for production, um, making tooling, so other things I have to make is mitering fixtures, which basically uh, is a way that you can repeatably cut the tubes, you know, to fit uh, in your frame jig, um, do it repeatably and accurately because all the prototypes, that stuff is done in a painstakingly slow <laughs> process where you're basically creeping up on, you know, the fine, you're making, you're only cutting, you know, five thousandths of an inch off at a time because you don't want to be throwing away tubes left and right. So you're just creeping up on it until it finally fits. Um, so these are things that I didn't really expect. I wish I had budgeted more for tooling because that's definitely um, putting me over budget. <laughs> so I have to rearrange things um, because it is necessary. You know, I have to have tooling to to make these things in a larger quantity other than, you know, I'm not going to make them in the same way I make a prototype. It would just take way too long. Um, and the cool thing is, is like once you're set up, it's not like it's any worse quality or anything. It's just, you've got repeatability now. So, um, if anything, the quality is probably better than if I was making each one individually painstakingly slow, just the same way the prototypes were made for sure. Yeah, that that stuff definitely helps. And how about the Contra name? Where did that come from? That just came from me searching for a ton of names. Anything that was available that hadn't been used before for a bike company. Um, and then, so I had like a massive list of, of names and I actually bought like a ton of websites. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> it was kind of stupid buying websites up left and right thinking, oh, I have to secure all these different websites because somebody's going to know this bike name or whatever. And then um, really we're just running it by some friends. <laughs> um, actually, we're my fiance and I like we're we're we we often will uh, hang out with Brennan Jill when they come in town here. 
so Britt, uh, Jill Kintner and Bryn Atkinson, um, which obviously I would think your, your, uh, listeners will know who they are. Um, and we were out to dinner with them and basically we're just going over names and they, uh, really loved that name and it, and it was a name that I was leaning towards, but I didn't know, uh, you know, what other people would think about it. So they really pushed me to do that, to do that name. And, and really what it means is to be, there's a bunch of different meanings, I guess, but it's to be contrasting like against opposing. So for me, it it really sums up, like, I'm not trying to be the same as every other bike company. Um, I'm trying to be different. Um, not just for the sake of being different, but because I want to be different and I want it to be, um, you know, not a, uh, disposable item. I want it to be something that you hang on to for 15, 20 years or even a lifetime, um, and have it still be relevant and still be good. And I don't, I don't think, I think the majority of the bike industry, unfortunately, doesn't really operate that way. It's about selling the new hot thing every year. And, uh, you know, I've seen a ton of broken carbon frames <laughs> and, Part of that is just because they don't take rock impacts well, but I think also part of it is kind of planned obsolescence. You know, they just kind of make bikes that uh, aren't really made to last a, a long time, and that's not great for the environment and not great for the the customer that, that buys the bike. So, yeah, it was just me wanting to do something different from what the norm is in the bike industry, make something that's made to last a really long time. You know, it's, it's, it's made out of steel too, which is a really, it's kind of a, a cool material. Like it's, it doesn't get as, as, as much credit as it deserves, but, um, you know, it has some really good characteristics, uh, that I think will probably surprise people when they actually get to ride a chance to ride the bike. That's perfect. And, just a cool story behind a name that I think fits really nicely with what you're doing. Like you said, you're setting out to do things a bit differently than the rest of the bike industry. And the results so far look super cool. So very excited to see where this goes. Looking forward to hopefully getting on one at some point when we can make that happen. And before I let you go here though, I kind of feel bad asking this since this whole show has been about a thousand big ideas from you, but it is how we like to wrap up by asking the guests if they've got anything else they want to share, just some idea that's been rattling around in their head to put out into the world. So any final big idea to put a capstone on this one? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's the idea that I have is, is just something that, uh, I think a lot of people probably have too, but I would, something that I would like to see, Maybe if there's bike industry people listening, they can, they can, uh, run with it. But for me, I, I, I'm all about, um, well, personally, I, I, I ride a normal non e-bike and I enjoy, um, the physical challenge of it. But one thing I definitely don't enjoy is the, um, rear derailleur. (laughs) So I would say, the big idea is not something that I have. It's not something that is like unknown, but I would just love to see. And it's something that I will pursue in the future is, is just see a proper gearbox solution for bikes. Um, it's somewhere that I I don't understand why there hasn't been a stronger push into that. Um, other than the fact that, you know, these large, the, the rear derailleur is obviously it's very efficient. It does its job. Um, it's more affordable, but at the same time, it's, it's somewhat disposable. Um, and so for me, like I have this dream, you know, working towards what I think to be the perfect bike. And for me, the perfect bike, even from the beginning, when I was a a younger kid is, is going to have a gearbox that you can fully shift under power that you'd never have to hit the, you know, the derailleur doesn't ever hit on any obstacles because you don't have a derailleur. Um, and yeah, there's just some massive benefits 
of it. But I think that currently the options out there are just, they're not efficient enough. You know, you can't shift under power, at least not both directions. Um, and yeah, I just think we also have to have trigger shifters um, for the gearbox. And so it's, I don't know, it's it's not like, a groundbreaking idea, but I feel like whoever can come up with a gearbox that will eliminate the derailleur for, you know, the majority of the mountain bike industry, that'll, that'll be a, the big idea, I guess. Yep. That's a big one. Have you seen the, uh, wild bikes, super drive prototype stuff? Uh, not in person, but I have, yeah, obviously online yeah. I've been paying attention to that. And that's a, that's a cool kind of like, I guess it's almost kind of a halfway because you're yeah. you're getting like the durability of having a less exposed derailleur, um, but you're still using you know traditional a chain having to shift over cogs, which obviously the new Shimano stuff you can shift pretty well under power. Um, that's part of why I've been running that stuff on my bike. Um, but I just you know you I look at like uh, automotive stuff like I mean the way that formula one cars can just bang through gears is rad. I just want, I want that, you know, I want that in a bike. Um, I want the ability to shift in, instantly fully under power. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the long-term durability too, if you can make it where all you have to do is an oil change every year or two, that'd be pretty amazing. Um, it would, that would be cool. So, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, like you said, I think just the efficiency has been kind of the sticking point with gearboxes thus far. But yeah, hopefully someone can crack that nut because I'm with you. That would be sweet if if we can get there. Yeah, hopefully it'll be me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. After what you pulled off here, I don't, I'm not going to bet against you on that one. So Evan, this has been super fun. Thanks for coming on, taking the time and giving us the rundown on the bike and best of luck with everything going forward. I'm very excited to see this project keep moving forward. So Thanks again. It's been a blast. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, and we'll definitely get you on a bike eventually once I have more than one. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you're enjoying these conversations, then we'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Evan for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again real soon.